The Great Lakes and Her Story can't happen without your help. To learn more, go to patreon.com forward slash emorris. Greetings, happy holidays, and welcome to the... No, it's going to be the last episode of 2017, but it turns out to be the first episode of 2018. And for this, the holiday episode, we'll call it that, I have committed to honoring the memory of those that lost their lives in the service aboard the one ship that is, I feel, the most revered and hallowed shipwreck amongst the Great Lakes, the Edmund Fitzgerald. It only seemed right to discuss this ship for Christmas, to consider this episode my gift to you, the fan of the history of the Great Lakes and the Edmund Fitzgerald herself. It is my whole intention with this episode to honor and reflect on the ship with respect and thoughtfulness towards her and her crew and their families. I'd like to take time to mention something directly to the family members of the victims if they would be listening, and it is this. My father, Leon Morris, taught me that the Edmund Fitzgerald is, and always will be, the most revered, respected, and hallowed shipwreck within the Great Lakes. She is the graveyard for those that served faithfully aboard her, and due to that I intend to respect the family members of those victims. I humbly request your patience in this telling of the Edmund Fitzgerald's history, details, specifications, and the events that caused the sinking of the ship. I pray for your well-being, safety, health, and happiness in this new year of 2018. And this is her story. We start in 1957. The contract is signed between the Great Lakes Engineering Works and the Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, stipulating that GLEW is to design and build the largest ship on the Great Lakes. This was signed on February 1st. On August 7th, the keel of hull number 301 is laid in River Rouge, Michigan. She was named for a Milwaukee banker and the chairman of the board at the Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Edmund Fitzgerald. The ship measured 729 feet long, 75 feet wide, 39 feet deep, and 8,686 net tons. The progress of her building was journaled by Charles Thiessen of the Detroit News, the Fitzgerald was to be joined by the William R. Roche, the Paul Thayer, and the Wolverine under the operations of the Columbia Transportation Company. One of the unique processes used to build the ship was that prefabricated steel subassemblies were used to create the hull. This was the first time that this was done. She is christened the Edmund Fitzgerald on June 8, 1958. The uniqueness of the Fitz, as her adoring crew called her, didn't stop there. J.L. Hudson was commissioned to design interiors from the carpets, leather chairs, curtains, and other accoutrements in the guest quarters. She was truly the queen of the Great Lakes. 
On September 13th of the same year, she started her sea trials. Once passed, she would be handed over to the operating crew. On September 22nd, Ogle Bay Norton took over operation, which was leased in an agreement for 25 years under a charter that would expire in 1983. On September 24th, Captain Bert Lambert takes her through Sioux Locks as her inaugural voyage. This also set the record for the large load carried through the locks. In 1959, the Edmund Fitzgerald is assigned a new captain, Captain Larson. He operates until 1966, when Peter P. Pulser replaces him as captain. We fast forward to 1969. On September 6th, the Edmund Fitzgerald runs aground near Sioux Locks. She sustains interior and exterior damage. In 1970, on April 13th, she collides with the SS Hochelaga, the second bout of damage in less than eight months. The third strike hits on September 4th of the same year when she hits a lock wall. Three incidents of damage within 12 months. In 1972, the Edmund Fitzgerald is converted from coal fire to oil. She is then assigned her final captain, Captain Ernest McSorley, a veteran of 42 years of service at the sea and was on his way to retirement. The rest of the crew had, by this time, made their way to seniority status. By the final voyage of 1975, the only member of the crew to not come along was the cook. His doctor had told him to remain on land, and due to that, a replacement cook had to be assigned. The new cook had sent a postcard to his wife, quoting, I may not be home by November 8th, as he continued with the ominous tone, however, nothing is ever sure. Prior to her final voyage, she had been damaged two more times in January and June of 1974 the first time losing its bow anchor nearly one mile to the west of Belle Isle on the Detroit River. The second time she hits a Sulak wall. This would be the second bit of damage in one month. On November 9th, 1975, the Edmund Fitzgerald is loaded with taconite pellets at Burlington Northern Railroad Dock 1. Its destination is Zug Island on the Detroit River. Now let's look at the weather during this time, which I have to say is yet another hobby of mine. On November 9th at 2.39 p.m., the National Weather Service issues gale warnings for the area which the Fitzgerald is operating. All day long that day, the weather is hammering Michigan from the west. Trees are getting torn down, buildings lose windows, winds increase up to 70 miles an hour. Three youths were blown off a Lake Michigan pier. One was rescued. Officers responding set off to find the other two. Sources do not state whether they were found. The Mackinac Bridge was no exception from the wind and storm. A driver was reported to have stopped at the entrance driving from Escanaba. He stopped to ask if the bridge was safe to cross. The booth operator stated all was well. On the way across the bridge, the truck and bridge were taking a list, sometimes up to 45 degrees. At that point, the truck had, in slow motion, tipped right over, landing on another vehicle. The driver and his son had busted out of the front window to get out. They were then transported to get assistance. 
This, then, is the exact timeline of the events leading up to the disaster that took the lives of those that called the Edmund Fitzgerald their own. At 1 a.m., a weather report from the Fitzgerald, 20 miles south of Isle Royal. Winds at 52 knots, waves at 10 feet. At 7 a.m., winds are at 35 knots, waves at 10 feet. This is the final weather report the Edmund Fitzgerald would make. At 3.15 p.m., Captain Jesse Cooper of the SS Arthur M. Anderson notes that the Fitzgerald is closer to the six-fathom shoal than he'd want to be, stating this as he sees her round Caribou Island. At 3.20 p.m., Anderson reports wind from the northwest at 43 knots. At 3.30 p.m., radio transmission between the Fitzgerald and the Anderson. Captain McSorley to Captain Cooper. Anderson, this is the Fitzgerald. I have sustained some topside damage. I have a fence rail laid down, two vents lost or damaged, and a list. I'm checking down. Will you stay by me till I get to Whitefish? Captain Cooper. Charlie on the Fitzgerald, do you have your pumps going? Captain McSorley. Yes, both of them. At 4.10 p.m., the Fitzgerald radios the Arthur M. Anderson requesting radar assistance for the remainder of the voyage. Fitzgerald. Anderson, this is the Fitzgerald. I have lost both radars. Can you provide me with radar plots till we reach Whitefish Bay? Anderson. Charlie on that. Fitzgerald will keep you advised of position. About 4.39 p.m. The Fitzgerald cannot pick up the Whitefish Point radio beacon. The Fitzgerald radios the Coast Guard station at Grand Marais on Channel 16, the emergency channel. Between 4.30 and 5 p.m., the Edmund Fitzgerald calls for any vessel in the Whitefish Point area regarding information about the beacon and light at Whitefish Point. They receive an answer by the saltwater vessel Afavor that the beacon and the light are not operating. Estimated between 5.30 and 6 p.m., radio transmission between the Afavor and the Fitzgerald. Afavor. Fitzgerald, this is the Afavor. I have the Whitefish light now, but still am receiving no beacon. Over. Fitzgerald, I'm very glad to hear it. Afavor, the wind is really howling down here. What are the conditions where you're at? Fitzgerald, undiscernible shouts heard by the Afavor. Don't let nobody on deck. Afavor, what's that, Fitzgerald? Unclear. Over. Fitzgerald, I have a bad list, lost both radars, and I'm taking heavy seas over the deck. One of the worst seas I've ever been in. Afavor, if I'm correct, you have two radars. Fitzgerald, they're both gone. Sometime around 7 p.m., the Anderson is struck by two huge waves that put water on the ship, 35 feet above the waterline. The waves hit with enough force to push the starboard lifeboat, lifeboat down, damaging the bottom. 7.10 p.m. Radio transmission between the Anderson and the Fitzgerald. The Fitzgerald is still being followed by the Arthur M. Anderson. They're about 10 miles behind the Fitzgerald. Anderson. Fitzgerald, this is the Anderson. Have you checked down? Fitzgerald. Yes, we have. Anderson. Fitzgerald, we're about 10 miles behind you and gaining about 1.5 miles per hour. Fitzgerald, there's a target 19 miles ahead of us, so the target would be 9 miles ahead of you. Fitzgerald, well, am I going to clear? 
Anderson, yes, he is going to pass to the west of you. Fitzgerald, well, fine. Anderson, by the way, Fitzgerald, how are you making out with your problem? Fitzgerald, we are holding our own. Anderson, okay, fine, I'll be talking to you later. These were the last words to be heard from the Fitzgerald. Jim Doherty, the dean of northern Michigan newspaper editors, had described the situation aboard the Edmund Fitzgerald based on his experience as a merchant mariner during World War II. If the Fitz crew were standing watches as we did at 7.10 p.m., the captain would have the bridge on such a night along with a third mate, a wheelsman, and probably another seaman. They would be operating their radar, sonar, and radio. With an oiler and an engineer type, the third engineer would be running the engine room with 50 minutes to go to be relieved by the second officer. The cook's helpers would be finishing dishes from dinner. As for the rest of the crew, who stand four hours on and eight hours off watches, no doubt some would be in the sack. That's the most comfortable spot on a wild night. A few might be writing letters to mail at the locks, perhaps a pal or a girlfriend, even an instructor or Northwestern Michigan College where he was a maritime student. But most of the men were off duty and were probably sitting around talking of other storms, other adventures. The old timers would be telling of past November gales, which would be somewhat embellished by many times of retelling and the passing years, which make waves higher wind stronger and the peril of the ships even greater. Old freshwater salts are great storytellers and the young men listen and question them with keen interest, never sure they're hearing it like it was or being put on. But on such a night everyone is keyed up, the senses are more acute, and the usual noises of the ship and the sea are louder and more intense. The younger men are more comfortable with others and they want to know how this night compares with past storms that the old-timers and their ships weathered. At 7.20, the Edmund Fitzgerald is gone from radar of the Anderson, and the Anderson calls the Coast Guard to report what had happened. At 7.55 p.m., the Coast Guard reports no visual, no sight of the Fitzgerald on radar. At 9 p.m., the Anderson and Coast Guard have a conversation. Coast Guard, Anderson, this is Group Sioux. What is your present position? Anderson, we are down here about two miles off Parisian Island right now. The wind is northwest 40 to 45 miles here in the bay. Coast Guard, is it calming down at all, do you think? Anderson, in the bay it is, but I heard a couple of salties talking up there, and they wish they hadn't gone out. In May of 1976, wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald is officially identified, and in 1980 the Calypso expedition takes place. On September 24th, this would be the second major expedition to take place. Led by Jacques Cousteau's son, Jean-Michel, the expedition is named for his ship, the Calypso. Albert Falco and Colin Mounier operated a two-man submarine with the purpose of making a film regarding the St. Lawrence River and its tributaries. The documentary had shown brief glimpses of the Edmund Fitzgerald, showing it in two pieces. The theory at the time was that it broke in two, causing it to sink. No official reports or witnesses can testify due to the squall it was caught in at the time. The Edmund Fitzgerald is remembered and honored 
by numerous memorials. The two that I'm familiar with are, of course, including the song by Gordon Lightfoot, released in 1979. As a youngster in junior high, our history teacher made us memorize the lyrics. Music was my strong suit, but memorizing was not. I did fairly well, and I gave it a solid effort. At the time, I knew it was more important to honor the ship and her crew even then. That song was, and is still, a favorite in my heart. I would play it here, but I don't have the licensing or permission. Instead, I will post a link, and that is http colon slash slash www.dailymotion.com forward slash video forward slash x2gfnoj. The other I knew of was the annual memorial at the Mariners Church of Detroit. This is where the original service was held, ringing the bell 29 times for each member of the crew that died aboard the Edmund Fitzgerald that fateful night. And this is the part of the show where I state the sources I used in preparation for this episode. I want to thank all the efforts put in the organization of www.ssedmundfitzgerald.org. Timothy McCall organized this site. He lives in Indianapolis, Indiana. He started work on this project in 2000 and has been featured in many books, interviews, on the radio, television, and newspaper. I hoped to chat with him previous to the episode, but it was not meant to be. His schedule probably is much busier than mine. I have the intention to get a hold of him for an interview in the future. Also, I referred to the book written by William Radigan, Great Lakes Shipwrecks and Survivors, the Edmund Fitzgerald Edition. This book was one of my favorites from my father's library. If you would like to suggest an episode or if you have a ship or you're more curious on, feel free to write me at everett at churchstreetstudios.online. Thank you for subscribing and also thank you for your patience and the waiting for this episode. Honestly, I produce when I can. This holiday season has been super busy. I have been working my real job, <laughs> keeping things going with the family and such. You all, I'm sure, understand quite well what the holidays are like. Stay tuned and subscribe for the next episode where we discuss yet another shipwreck and the latest happenings around the Great Lakes region here on the Great Lakes and her story. This has been a production of Church Street Studios. To learn more, go to churchstreetstudios.online. Yeah.